Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, personal development, and spirituality. In today's episode, I sit down with Polly Young Eisendrath, PhD, a psychologist, writer, speaker, and Jungian analyst who has published 19 books, including The Self-Esteem Trap, Raising Confident and Compassionate Kids in an Age of Self-Importance, and Love Between Equals, Relationship as a Spiritual Path. She hosts the popular podcast Enemies from War to Wisdom that provides a fresh look at human hostilities and what to do about them. She's also a lifelong Buddhist practitioner and a mindfulness teacher. I learned about Polly through a past guest, Catherine Woodward Thomas, who spoke so highly of her work, and I'm just so excited to dive in. So welcome to the show, Polly. Thank you, Jasmine. I'm very happy to be here. So Polly, I'd love to just dive right in to one of the books um, that you wrote, Love Between Equals. What does that phrase actually mean? Uh, because it feels like we live in such a world of kind of disparate um, you know, potentials and between people. So what does it actually mean to love between equals? Well, uh, you know, when I when I wrote the book, I mean, it came out in 2019. Uh, what I was having in mind in the title was a couple relationship, uh, you know, marriage or cohabiting relationship. But since uh, the book came out and since I've done a lot of teaching on it, I also think about adult children and their parents, siblings, friends, uh, anyone who's an adult and is relating to somebody that they do not have status over. So there's the sense that we're equals. And in terms of cohabiting partners and marriage, uh, that whole sort of idea is really new, really, really new. You know, throughout pretty much recorded time, uh, marriage and family life has been hierarchical. And, you know, sometimes uh, the man is in charge, was the, the two sexes, a man would be in charge outside of the home, the woman would be in charge inside of the home, or sometimes the man is in charge inside and outside of the home. But with that kind of hierarchy that was a part of what we call patriarchy, whatever you want to call it, in any, every culture there's been hierarchy in families, um, with that hierarchy there is a decision tree and people make decisions based on top to bottom and that kind of um, relating uh, you know requires in some ways that somebody be oppressed uh, now you know in in our culture and in other western democracies uh, there's been a movement towards stopping that kind of oppression and hierarchy and instead, uh, wanting within family life where there's a couple, that the two people are equal with each other in status and also in decision-making power, and sometimes even in things like income um, or position in the community and so on. So we've moved from hierarchy to equality in couple-relating And in some ways, that has happened also for grown children and their parents. Uh, You know, in the past, you might have for your entire life felt uh, that you were obliged to treat your parent with a certain kind of formal respect. And so you didn't, you didn't, you weren't personal in dealing with your parent. You didn't relate to them on a personal feeling level after you grew up and left the family. Um, And it might have been similar for siblings and so on. But in all of those relationships now, equality is more the theme. And um, because of that, and this, I can't emphasize this too much, there are so many more problems now in relating within families and within couples than there were previously. Um, And the problems have to do with the expectations and ideals that surround reciprocity, mutuality, and equality. You know, we have ideals that there should be give and take, that we should be able to have fairness, that we should have, you know, that if you, if I, if I show you attention and interest, 
then you should also show me attention and interest. And so these kinds of exchanges that are based on equality have now been imposed as ideals on our relationships and people fight much more <laughs> now that they can't oppress each other. They fight because there's the sense that the other person is offending you by not treating you in a reciprocal and mutual way. Um, so let me just, I'll, I'll pause there because I'm going to come back to the idea that we need skills to do this kind of relating. But is this making sense to you? Yes, yes. I didn't want to interrupt you because honestly, I think this point is so important in our culture, uh, especially I think in certain cult cultures outside of the Western culture. Um, there's there's an idealism and then there's also a hierarchy uh, with partnership and also within families. And, you know, it was funny, even during uh, the last holiday, my father was telling me how when he was growing up, um, you could never say anything kind of negative to your to your parents. That was kind of the cultural norm. Um, and so I think we've just grown up in a culture where I personally feel very confused yeah. <laughs> about, you know, what makes sense in relationship with others, because as a woman and, you know, even as a minority, I have felt such a I guess, stratification, a sense of um, differences within the, the hierarchy of society. Uh, and so it's, it is confusing to then move into a space where we are, or at least it seems, it feels like we're moving towards desiring more equality in all types of relationships um, at work as well as in our personal life. So yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to understand how to actually apply these principles without maybe giving up a sense of like our identity, you know, with how we play out a specific role in relationship. I mean, how do we keep the intimacy? Um, how do we, yeah, like how do we maintain kind of our, our sense of identity in all this? Well, you know, it's much, much more difficult than what people believe it should be. And that's one thing I like to stress in the very beginning in talking about this. Um, Human beings, homo sapiens, have a tremendous desire to create enemies. And, you know, there, there is no way that we can function without trying to find someone to blame for things that go wrong. That we're, that's a design feature. And I don't want to go into all of the development that goes into that, but that has to do with the way that we are conscious. We're not just conscious like a dog is. You know, we're conscious of our consciousness. We're aware of our awareness. <laughs> and so that means we're always investigating our identity in regard to other people and trying to figure out where we rank and whether things are fair. And, you know, now that we've got the these ideals of equality and reciprocity, uh, we've got more imposed on the issues of identity uh, than perhaps we did when there was a distinct hierarchy. So it's like you have some choices as a human. You know, you can go for oppression and hierarchy, and then there's abuse, and there's a, there's a, there are a lot of problems with that, that system. But that system, which has been traditional in the high cultures like China and Greece, for example, that created culture, that that system of hierarchy and oppression has contributed to beauty, you know, to discipline, to all of these kinds of aspects of civilization that we believe are somehow the best of being human. <laughs> and <laughs> now that we're getting rid of all of the things that were the more oppressive sort of status-oriented ways of relating, what we have to do that we have never done in the history of homo sapiens is learn how to deal with conflict. You know, we just haven't learned that. And one reason why we haven't learned it is that we've used primarily war to replace dialogue between cultures and individuals where there were big differences now we don't want to do that. We don't want to go in and rape and pillage the other group. 
you know, in order to get power. But how do we deal with the ways that we feel badly treated when we feel people do not see us, do not hear us, do not know us, and we feel, you know, enraged about that because it seems humiliating. And that is inherently human to feel that way. There's not a single person who doesn't feel that way <laughs> when they're not seen and known and, you know, regarded as an individual. So um, the problems of relating as equals in a family, in a partnership, with siblings, at work, and then, my gosh, if you get into the bigger thing, like, you know, in society and between countries and so on, it's, it's a vast problem. And it requires more than anything else, a certain kind of discipline of our emotions, you know, that we have to lower emotional threat levels. We have to contain our reactivity in order to even be able to hear and see another person when we're, you know, feeling offended. Mm. So, um, so I'm going to, you know, I can, I can create this bigger picture, but I'm going to go back to the couple because most people are listening to this. They're, they're really wanting to know, like, how do I get along better with my partner or how do I get along better with my adult child, you know, or with somebody that is a, a familiar, an intimate, an intimate person. Um, so I want to just say a few things about the 21st century and the wishes that we made for our close relationships. We made, we made the wish that we should be able to relate to anybody and deal with the differences, you know, that there should be, you know, equity and there should be also the respect for differences and that we should be able to deal with these differences in a DEI kind of a way, you know. Um, and and in, in our own relationships, we may have also said, hey, you know, I should be able to uh, have a partnership with somebody who is transgender or somebody that my parents never even knew existed. You know, I'm not going to get my parents' approval for these things anymore. So we wanted this diversity. We wished for it. We got it. We also wanted this thing of equality, mutuality, reciprocity, which means that we have to have exchange. We have to have negotiation because, you know, there isn't just one person who always washes the dishes or one person who's always going to be making the money or one person who's going to take care of the children or one person, whatever, you know, we are going to share these things now. So we wanted this reciprocity, mutuality thing. And then the third thing that we wanted that was a wish was that we wanted to be witnessed. We wanted to be known as individuals by the people that are in our lives. We don't want to any longer just be your sister. I want you to know who I am, you know? I want you to know my personal identity and what I like and what I don't like. And my gosh, if you don't remember that, if you get me a gift that shows that you did not know that I hate cranberries, you know, I will throw that gift in your face because you should have known because you know me. And, you know, so we wanted this witnessing, we want it to be accurate. So you put those three things together, this kind of diversity thing, we're going to bring diversity into everything. We want reciprocity and equality and mutuality, and we want an accurate witness. And those three components, they will drive you crazy. You know, again and again <laughs> and again, in all your relationships, because it's as though you've invited in some sort of impossible situation that you can never get right with the people that you love. And um, in a way you have, <laughs> because you've, you've really invited in a situation where you have to become super mindful. You have to increase your awareness constantly, but especially in conflict. And, you know, the thing that has to come about, I, I call it the skill of real dialogue. Um, and that I, I will tell you the component parts to it. But even saying the component parts, it, it's, it's not as easy as it sounds. Um, because if you're emotionally activated, it's very hard to do it, but you can learn how to do it. So, you know, the way I think of it, we need, we are going to need mindfulness in relationship. 
when we are emotionally activated in order to be equals with the people that we love. Uh, there's no way to get around that. I mean, you could say, well, I've never heard of mindfulness and I don't care a thing about it. Well, good luck then, because, you know, you're going to end up with so many people who are enraged at you. <laughs> you're, not even, you're not even going to be able to count them after a while because you will have offended them in some way that you didn't even know you could offend them. Um, so these skills of real dialogue, uh, I will tell you the three skills that I work on with people in, in couples therapy, but I also work on them in uh, difficult conversations. I co-facilitate and facilitate difficult conversations. Um, so the, the skill of speaking for yourself is way more than using I statements. And what it means is that you speak as though you are a subject, a human being who is modest. So, you know, and who has subjective experience, who doesn't have all of the data, who doesn't remember things precisely because you don't, who is essentially inside of her own snow globe. You know, all of us have our own perceptions, our own feelings, our own sensations, our own, you know, color red, our own memory of the dates and so on. All of those things are subjective. And we come to them as individuals. They're highly individual. About 85 to 90% of your experience you are having as an individual, no one shares it with you. So when you realize that, then speaking for yourself sounds something like this. You know, the way I remember it, it was the 4th of July when your mother came, came over. And I remember her saying to me that she needed three of these recipes and nothing more from me. And then the way I recall it, she went home. Uh, how do you remember it? You know, instead of saying, you know, no, your mother came over here on the 4th of July and she said just this to me. And I am angry at her because I gave her those three recipes and now she wants more. And, you know, I don't care what you think about your mother. I remember what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so um, speaking for yourself puts you inside of a snow globe of modesty and perspective and recognizing that human beings remember things very inaccurately. We have uh, our working memory works about 5% of the time if it works. And so some cognitive scientists say 99% of the time we're unconscious when we're walking around doing things. So we don't remember things accurately. We have these individual experiences and we're subjective in the way we're experiencing them, but we believe that there is a color red out there. We believe that it did happen on the 4th of July because I remember exactly what was going on. And we believe, we believe all this stuff that makes it sound like we know something objectively. So speaking for yourself means you speak subjectively and you speak modestly. This is the way I, this is what I want. This is what I would like. How about you? What do you want? What do you like? Uh, you know, I remember it this way. And then never say, never say, the data say this. The data don't say anything. <laughs> it's really <laughs> And so instead you can say, I read the data this way. And I recognize I am making my conclusions about these so-called data. And here's the one, I conclude, how about you? There's always got to be room for the other person and the other reading of the data and the other memory of what data it was or what mother said or how the dog acted and so on. All of these things are subjective. So speaking for yourself, you speak subjectively, you speak with interest in the other person, not as though you know. You avoid rhetoric, like, shouldn't we all be kind? Doesn't everybody want a better world? You know, <laughs> those are rhetoric. You don't say that when you're speaking for yourself. And you don't do the objectivity, you know, like, 
you know, the data say, or everyone knows that because all that you're saying is what your own experience is. And uh, so speaking to the people that you love, speaking as an equal, you speak for yourself. It's very sort of circumscribed, you know, it's like, this is the way I recall it. This is what I feel. But you can say things strongly like, you know, I don't want to travel to Michigan. That's a subjective statement. That doesn't say anything about Michigan. <laughs> you know, it just says, I don't want to travel there. It's, but instead people into, you know, the, the objective, like Michigan's not a great place to travel. Anyway, yes. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I was just uh, curious if someone, let's say, um, has a, like incredibly different experience of the same event, which I'm sure most, many people probably do. Yes. Um, how, how, yeah. How do you navigate the differences? You know, if let, let's say, you know, I, I say, I remember it this way. The person says, I think I remember it a completely different way. What, what next, you know, how do you move forward from that conversation? Well, first of all, if you commit yourself to this way of speaking that, that I'm describing, which we call real dialogue, you have rules of the game. You, you, in, so you say, in this conversation, let's, let's, let's do the real dialogue thing. Let's not just do the food fight of life because that's what people do most of the time. They just fight. And then they start fighting about their memories. And then they never actually get to the conversation they were trying to have. Um, and they maybe never make any decisions because they fight about the sidebar so much. But um, so the first part is speaking for yourself with modesty. You commit yourself to that. That way of speaking lowers the threat level right away because I'm not speaking for you. You know, and I'm not saying it's this way, like all, you know, like all pine trees are this way. You know? Right. And then right. you say, no, I know a lot of pine trees that aren't that way. Well, who cares? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like I really, the issue <laughs> is really that I find pine trees to be like this. How about you? So the very first step then is speaking for yourself. The second step is listening mindfully to the other person. And listening mindfully does not mean simply paraphrasing because a lot of people will say, I hear you saying that you were angry. <laughs> it has this awful sound to it. Instead, <laughs> of, instead of being truly interested in what the other person's world is like. So, you know, say we go to a movie together. I just saw Dune with um, a couple of my adult children. And um, my daughter really loved it. And my son really hated it. I didn't like it very much myself. But... Um, you know, the, the thing that can often happen is that people start fighting about what happened in the movie instead of, I could say, and I did say, you know, I liked parts of it. Um, I liked this or that. I didn't really like this or that. How about you? And then I was interested in what the other person was saying because I know it gives me a different perspective on the movie. So then the listening mindfully you're trying to step into the other person's world. And before you respond to what they say, it's a rule in this way of interacting that you summarize and paraphrase what they've said, but in the framework of stepping into their snow globe, like, oh, so for you, the relationship between the mother and the son was the key factor in the movie. And you really weren't concerned about the chronology or the way things unfolded. Did I get that right? Is that the way it was for you? Which may be completely different for me. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So Polly, so I'm, I'm wondering like, what if before you could even go down to the, you know, this is what I am experiencing, um, the three steps, uh, what if you are just so activated or you're just, there's a, you know, a level of anger or, I don't know, fear within you in which you can't really get to that place of maybe reason and mindfulness. Like, is there, does it just take practice? Does it take, um, you know, just constant uh, vigilance or, or is it, is there something that you tell people to do to get them to that space? Well, it's a commitment. It's a commitment to relating in a way that will allow for love that will allow you to become a witness, that will allow you to know somebody 
else other than yourself and the things that you feel and know. And so there is a commitment and the commitment is to containment and to constraint, like that you know that you don't know everything. You know that you don't see things accurately. Um, and this is what I call mindfulness in relationship. So, you know, we practice mindfulness usually solo and we often practice it through meditation, sometimes, you know, through chanting or drumming or whatever. All of those things bring you concentration and equanimity. Um, but you commit yourself to a practice. So real dialogue is a practice. It's like any other commitment to practice. You decide you're going to practice it in times of emotional uh, conflict. And if you have somebody else that you know, you're relating to who's also practicing it, doing it together really slows things down and makes things more interesting. And eventually, the third aspect of real dialogue is remaining curious remaining curious about the other person, remaining curious about your own subjectivity, realizing that you see and know things in a very limited way yourself. So as you get to know somebody else's experience, you may see yourself differently. Um, now, you cannot do all of this when you are having the fight, flight, or freeze reactivity. Because in those, in those uh, you know, conditions, your perceptual system starts to shut down. You really can't hear. And um, one of the big things we know about negotiation is negotiation breaks down on the listening side. People simply can't hear what the other person is actually saying. And because they're so emotionally activated that they can only hear the, the sounds in their own minds, like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, <laughs> he's just a racist and he doesn't believe in climate change. And, you know, once you start listening only to the voices in your own mind, uh, you really cannot hear what the other person is saying. And because I do this so much and I've spent thousands of hours, you know, working with people on these skills, it is remarkable to the people themselves how little that they hear. <laughs> <laughs> and even when the things are repeated and even when I repeat it as the coach I say so you know your partner said I'm going to repeat it and check it with your partner your partner said this and this and this and then I asked the partner did I get it oh yes you got it perfectly well then I say to the other person now can you repeat it I've said it now can you repeat it and still they'll get it wrong because their emotional activation is causing them in their mind to skip into all the Many times that they've been in this situation before where the other person really didn't do this or that. So they're not listening even when I say it. So, yeah, it's a practice. It's it's a mindfulness practice, real dialogue. As I, in, on my website, I have three little booklets called The Skills of Real Dialogue, Speaking for Yourself, Listening Mindfully, Remaining Curious. People can download the booklets. I have a lot of teaching online about it. Um, it's, it's really at the core of what I'm doing these days in the world. And it's, uh, the basis also for my podcast enemies, because, uh, in that podcast, I show how human beings set up hostility in their relationships. And then that hostility becomes essentially, um, inevitable. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and then people get just so exhausted in trying to care about the people they care about that they may become estranged from their family members, you know, or get divorced or, or divorce their sibling or whatever, because there's the feeling like no matter what I say or do, it's not good enough. Uh, and it's really that this process of engagement through equality where you cannot pull rank. It is very hard to do. Does the other person that you engage with also have to be committed to the real dialogue? Can it just be done starting with one person? Yes, it can be. I mean, it's like anything else. You know, when you're relating to somebody, it's a system, right? And so if one part of the system changes, it changes the system. But Part of the problem with real dialogue, it's you you can use it as an what's called, you know, an end user skill. You could develop it yourself 
and you and you find that you'll feel better about the way you talk to other people and even about the way you can listen. However, if the other person is simply demeaning you or dismissing you or doing the old sort of I'm just not going to listen here thing, um, it's very hard to use the skills ongoing. You may feel better about yourself in the way that you've conducted yourself. And I commit myself to using these skills all the time. And so I can feel better about the way I've conducted myself, but I may not be able to influence the other person. And I may also feel really discouraged because I know they're not hearing what I'm saying. I mean, I know that I'm not saying what they're hearing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think a lot of people, especially, you know, at the holidays and, um, you know, family interactions, there's probably a lot of those things that come up where there's one family member who just does not know how to listen. And I think also the the complexities of intergenerational relationships too, you know, the hierarchy was very different in my parents' generation, in my grandparents' generation, than it is uh, in the United States, and then also cross-culturally, Middle East versus um, uh, United States, also very different when it comes to hierarchy. So it's fascinating. Polly, I have so many more questions for you, and <laughs> I uh, I feel like we're, we're just getting started. <laughs> but I wanted to talk a little bit about this concept that you bring up in your book, uh, which I thought was so important, uh, projective identification, and how so many couples uh, in relationships start off kind of feeling really good about their partnership, and then it sort of becomes this, you know... Um, enemy. Uh, this person who you love so much becomes an enemy and we hold them to sometimes a very high standard. I'd love for you to talk about this. It's something that um, I've sort of noticed, but didn't you know realize until you actually articulated it. So, Yeah. Well, you know, this, this uh, concept, it's, it's hard to say the two words together. They have a lot of syllables, projective identification. <laughs> um, it's, a it's a term that comes from a psychoanalyst named Melanie Klein. Um, and I wish it called it something else because <laughs> it's a really hard term to say, but um, it refers to the kind of communication that an infant um, is having with, let's just say the mother, you know, it could be with any adult taking care of it, but we'll say the mother. So from the time the infant is born until the infant is about 18 months to two years old. The infant really does not have mastery of any language and certainly doesn't have any culture or anything, but the infant must be cared for or it would die. I mean, the human infant is very dependent, needs care all the time, and also needs to be precisely cared for. Like the mother needs to get the message, I'm hungry, or, you know, I'm hurting, or my diaper is wet, or, you know... I need, I'm enraged, I'm rattled to my core, I need you to hold me. Now, the way that the human infant gets that across is through emotional signaling. We're born with these primary emotions. They uh, basically program us to interact with others to get our needs met. And all of us have 18 months of practice in taking control of somebody else with our emotions. And we feel like our lives depend on it because they do in our early times. So all human beings everywhere, because we have a long dependency and our early dependency, we don't have language, we don't have culture, we don't have any organization of our identity, but we have emotions. And so we all know how to convey to others that we, we need to control them in order to get our needs met. And we also know how to essentially place our traumas, our wounds, our desperate feelings outside of ourselves so that they can be cared for. Now, in our long dependency of growing up, our parents will always wound us. There's no way that you can get it right with a human infant with a human child, it, it's about, you know, at least 14 years 
of development that the parents having to take care of the child before it can cognize what's going on. Those parents are going to have problems taking care of that child because of all the things we talked about, subjectivity, not knowing what's going on, you're moving from your own perceptions, et cetera, et cetera. So the all children growing up, their foundational way of communicating is emotions without language. And then as they develop, they get better and better at forming with their own personality, ways of protecting themselves, ways of promoting themselves. So by the time we get to be adults, we all do this projective identification in attempting to control others to get our needs met. And we tend to do it in the way that we did it as a child because we habituated to certain ways to protect ourselves in the family, certain ways to promote ourselves in the family. And we had that sense that we were powerless, you know, because we were in in those situations. But now as adults, we can get into a pretty deep hole when we feel like somebody's trying to take control of us or we need to take control of somebody else in order to get our needs met. And these things happen. Projective identification is a way essentially of projecting into another something about yourself, then trying to control it in the other. And then that sort of often evokes in the other person a reaction, which then can seem to confirm the very thing that you thought was going on with the other person. Like, for example, you know, you look at your partner and you think, well, you know, she really looks depressed. And so you go over and you say, hey, what's wrong? You know, um, you look depressed. And she goes, are you fucking out of your mind? I'm not <laughs> depressed at all. You know, and so then she's, then she's angry. And you're like, well, <laughs> you know, you're angry because you're depressed. And so there's something about her depression that evokes something from you. You're saying it's depression. For her, it might be irritability. but You've got a routine within your own mind based on your parents, and you believe you see it as it is. So projective identification is this kind of unconscious interaction that everybody can do. It's based on essentially feeling like you're a baby, like feeling like things have to go the way you want them to go because your life depends on it, or you're trapped in a hall of mirrors where you know, everything you say, your partner says, oh, that's happening for me too. Or that's what you do to me. Um, Or you feel like the other person is constantly evoking in you certain kinds of emotional reactions that you don't intend, but you have to kind of go along with them because you're kind of trapped in a situation that you can't get out of. All of these kinds of interactions are projective identification and everybody can do it and everybody does it. And we do it in groups all the time. We try to get our needs met by controlling others. But it's only in our closest relationships that these things become chronic and they become predictable and then they lead to polarization. And so in all of our love relationships, you know, we fall in love really through projective identification. It's an idealizing projective identification. It's like, oh, you're perfect for me. You know, (laughs) I want you for me. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, I want you to be so strong, so intelligent. I want you to be so beautiful, so organized. And when you're falling in love, and it's going both ways, both people are saying more or less, you're the fairest in the land. And that's really gratifying and intoxicating. You know, oh, I'm the fairest in the land. Oh, I'm the fairest in the land too. You know? <laughs> and, and it's like a psychotic delusion of intoxication <laughs> feels great and people love it and i'm i have nothing against it i think it's it's wonderful to fall in love uh but you're stepping into a projective situation that is definitely going to disappoint you and it's definitely going to form into not only is the person going to fall off the pedestal but you are going to find in that person the primary wound that you experienced with one of your parents or an older sibling, it's going to seem like that person is wounding you in exactly the way that you were wounded previously because of these unconscious communications. And maybe nothing is even put into words, but you're experiencing that 
and you're telling your partner, you know, this is what you're doing to me. And the partner is like, I don't know what you're talking about, but you will find evidence that that person is actually intending to harm you. And so, you know, these kinds of unconscious interactions are what are slowed. Those things are slowed down through real dialogue. They're, they're just slowed down. They're not necessarily unpacked. I mean, they might be, but you can stop doing them by speaking for yourself, listening mindfully, remaining curious. Then you don't automatically go to the, this is what you always do to me. This is what you always say, you know, you never, you never know, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So and Polly, I think, what I've noticed is that uh, a lot of people get into relationships with the next person and the next person, and they'll sort of end up in the same loop, <laughs> like the same yeah. sort of stuck loop. So it's like different, uh, same um, guy, different name, <laughs> or like same same woman, different name. Exactly. Because uh, exactly. yeah, they're, so- they're bringing the script. You know, you're bringing your own productive identification script with you, and you can put it out there on anybody (laughs) and that's true not just in relationships that are romantic but probably in kind of all types of relationships that we or is it just for romantic relationships no it's in all relationships where we care about the other people and particularly as we said where there's equality you know where we we don't have we're not going to do the hierarchy thing we want to be known we want to be witnessed we want to be known as an individual and, you know, whether it's a sibling relationship or it's an adult child with a parent uh, or it's friendship um, and, and sometimes also at work where we really want an equal relationship, we want to be known, we want to be seen. So in any of those relationships, you can get into a projective identification that turns the other person into an enemy that you believe is intending to hurt you or to not know you, or just can't kind of listen to you. So the sense also that the other person intends you harm is always part of it, you know, because it's primary wound that gets reenacted with somebody who doesn't really know anything about your primary wound and is not doing that to you, but it seems like it is the case. Um, So yeah, it can be in any adult to adult equal relationship with somebody that you care about. Honestly, if you don't care about the person, you can brush off. You can have a moment where you feel like, oh, this person doesn't understand me, but so what, you know, and you just brush it off and it doesn't bother you. But when it's someone close, it really bothers. And have you noticed any big changes in relationship dynamics with the pandemic and how it's played out? Well, everybody's feeling worse. (laughs) People feel stuck at home. And uh, so a lot of these dynamics, I mean, I did see couples through the whole pandemic and, you know, some, some of the hostilities really did verge into violence and people didn't necessarily, I mean, what I find is that most people want their relationships to work out. I mean, I don't really deal with any people who really want to harm other people that they love. Um, And uh, so people coming to couples therapy or some of the difficult conversations that I facilitated, there was a sense of hopelessness. Like we can't do, we don't know how to do this. We can't even make decisions together anymore because once we start to talk to each other, it always goes back into this repetitive thing. And there was a kind of despondency because you're stuck at home. You're, you know, you're working at home, your kids are at home. And, um, you know, there wasn't not enough space between people. Um, And then real dialogue does create emotional space. And so once people could feel that emotional space, they could start to feel hopeful again, that there might be a way to heal, you know, their relationship or to repair what had been damaged. But the um, the sense of being stuck with each other and also having all of this projective identification, hostility stuff going on was very defeating. 
you know, for many, many people. And of course, I do know the increase in domestic violence, the increase in suicides, the increase in um, heroin addiction, fentanyl addiction, all of these things are occurring often in families. You know, just the family relationships just are feeling so bad. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, Polly, I want to switch gears um, only because we're coming at time and talk a little bit about self- the self-esteem a trap and then also uh, your TED Talk where you talked about how we free ourselves of self-importance. I think, I know that we don't have that much time to go into these topics, but I wanted to just um, to brush on them a bit and uh, talk about both of them. Well, let me say that in, a, some, in some ways, when I talked about speaking for yourself, it gets at the core of the fact that you're, you're one little person, you know, with <laughs> a point of view. And, um, and you make a lot of mistakes and you don't remember things accurately. And you, and you will never, ever be perfect. You cannot perfect yourself. You know, and you certainly can't perfect the world and you can't perfect other people, but let's start with yourself. Right, right. You know, um, and the, part of the problem in this period of time is that parents try to, to perfect their children. Children try to perfect themselves. And people then become so negative about themselves because they fall short of all these standards. You know, it's like, I'm not thin enough, smart enough healthy enough, um, vibrant. And I mean, I don't even know what, I mean, people go into <laughs> all sorts of things and then they've got these elaborate diets, you know, like I can't eat this and I can't eat that. And I have to do it this way and that way. And it, it's as though we, we have a tremendous, what I call a negative self-importance. It's like, we're, you know, we're, we're sort of critics of so much of our experience like I didn't do that well, and I didn't do that well, and I'm not sure if I'm good enough to do this. And, and then that makes us very preoccupied with ourselves. You know, it's like we can hardly notice that there's a sun rising out there and there's some flowers opening or snow coming down or whatever. <laughs> so we're so preoccupied with what we did wrong or how we're not good enough or what our defects are. So the the TED Talk um, that the key to happiness is letting go of self-importance is really more about letting go of negative self-importance, all the criticisms of yourself, the ways that you think you fall short, et cetera. Um, And when I wrote The Self-Esteem Trap, I wrote it initially for people that were in their 20s and their 30s who had grown up with the idea that they were amazing and they were going to have to have amazing lives. And now, you know, they're like 38 and they haven't written a Netflix series or something. <laughs> they haven't done anything that is really notable. And like, you know, and how could that be? Because they went to the best colleges and they had all of the potential and all the lessons and so on. But nobody's ever said that they're just ordinary people, you know, that they never felt like they could just be regular, ordinary people who are flawed and, you know, forget a lot of things and don't measure up and so on. There wasn't room for ordinariness. And that was that was a certain style of parenting that came to be, I think, as a kind of some kind of correction to the baby boomer parenting that might have been a little more neglectful or sloppy or chaotic or whatever. I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> we were trying to get away from our kids in a way but (laughs) the next generation like wanted to be with their kids all the time um but that perfecting of the child led to a certain kind of obsession with perfectionism and then that led to a whole lot of unnecessary suffering through eating disorders and constant measuring up kinds of things and you know never going easy on yourself not developing compassion for yourself not understanding that you can't be perfect you know it's so there's a certain kind of loop in everything that I've written about in the last I'd say like 10 years or so that loops always back to the idea and this is a buddhist idea that you know this world that we're living in is samsara this is the world of life and death it cannot be perfected 
it is not a perfect place. Nothing here can be perfected. Everything is impermanent. Everything is contextualized in a way that you can't control. You know, so you can wish for certain outcomes and you can try for them, but you cannot make them happen. So once you get that frame of reference really clear, then you suffer less because you, you're clear. You know, you cannot perfect this. And neither can your partner or your parent or your sibling. They're all going to fall short. <laughs> you know, and if you have a little sense of humor, it gives them a break too. But uh, it's, it's really kind of recognizing that at root, we can't perfect it. We also, all of us want to be witnessed. We really want to be known and seen. And it is possible to do that because we, we are aware of our awareness. And we can learn to be mindful and we can even learn to be mindful, you know, when we're emotionally activated, uh, if we practice it and um, that, that will make us in the end, actually, you know, more modest, having a bigger sense of humor about yourself, particularly, and um, more curious about others. So uh, that's the essence of love is my, in my book anyway. Mm. Uh, super powerful. I love that so much because I think uh, we're all sort of paying a price for the <laughs> the level of perfection that I think was desired and imposed on so many of us. Um, yeah, powerful. Uh, Polly, I wanted to talk a little bit about what attracted you to this space and why you felt such a desire to bring this you know work into the world. Oh uh, well, you know. In a nutshell, I, I grew up with a lot of domestic violence. Um, you know, my, my parents met and married in a factory. I mean, they basically were, they were factory workers. They didn't get married in the factory, but they were both, they were both working in a factory. Neither of them had even an eighth grade education. So I've made these huge strides in terms of coming from a working class background in Akron, Ohio. Um, and then, you know, going on to be very educated through, you know, a period of time when it was possible to get scholarships and and do a lot of things that aren't possible anymore, really. Um, but uh, I, in growing up where I grew up, um, I saw a lot of domestic violence. It wasn't really turned on me so much. Um, I was kind of protected by my mother. But I realized that people um, really intended harm to each other. And then I heard from my father who was in the war. I heard about war when I was about seven years old. I came to understand that people willingly killed each other. And so for about nine months, I didn't speak. After I learned about that, I just stopped speaking because it was so profoundly, I don't know, profoundly discouraging to me. I mean, I just couldn't quite grasp it that people killed each other willingly. I mean, I'd seen a lot of threat around me, but I'd never seen anyone actually, you know, I've seen, I'd seen people beat each other up, but not, not take a knife and try to kill each other, but I could imagine killing. And um, the whole prospect of war just set me back on my heels. And that affected me a lot as a child. I mean, after about nine months, I started speaking again and I learned a lot in that period of silence. I learned how powerful silence is, for one thing. Um, but uh, I began to follow a path that was an anti-war path. I mean, I wouldn't have said that when I was eight years old. But it was definitely looking for what might be possible that would sort of stop this hostility. And my whole life has been, in one way or another, dedicated to that. I mean, I was, I was anti-war. I was, you know, early on in the peace movement. I was also anti-racist. I grew up in a racially integrated area um, in Akron, Ohio. And um, so as I moved on in my own education and development, I started to realize that this whole issue of hostility and war for humans is much more built into the design. It's not something that you can really move away from just by having ideals. And um, then, you know, from there, I went into doing couples therapy <laughs> because I, <laughs> I thought, well, here's the war that I can work with, you know. 
And But then after many years of doing couples therapy, which I started doing, I wrote a book about it in 1984. So I started, that was my kind of the beginning of my writing and my career. Um, I, um, I realized that everything I was doing with couples could be translated into a larger framework and that that might come back to address the problems of war that I had so much wanted to solve as a young person and as a radical, you know, and then the whole progressive radical movement just kind of left anti-war behind. It didn't even bring it along. Uh, and so, you know, that I feel like in this last part of my life, I'm coming back to where I started, which is that, you know, that human beings have to stop killing each other. And in order to do that, because most still most murders take place in families. Most murders take place in a domestic setting. Uh, and in order to do that, they have to learn some skills because it's our nature to create enemies. It's not our nature to live peacefully. And since Homo sapiens have been on Earth, about 95% of their societies have been at war continuously. Uh, so, you know, it's like, I feel like it's a it's a spiritual path for me. It's what brought me to Buddhism. It's where my life has been dedicated, and um, I'm still still working on it. You know, it's a, but that's it's a very personal issue for me. Um, and you know, just to put it in a slightly different nutshell, um, my my father's father was murdered when my father was six years old, and then my father's mother committed suicide when my father was 10 because of the poverty and the situation she was in. So both of my father's parents died violent deaths. So he had within him the, the ghosts of all of that. He never spoke about it. I only know about it, you know, retrospectively. And now I know a lot about it because um, a distant cousin found the newspaper articles just recently reporting my grandparents' deaths, both the, both the, the guy that was murdered found floating in a river, and then my grandmother, who self-administered poison and to herself and died with four young children. So, you know, it's just that that closeness of violence to my, my upbringing uh, made a big imprint on me. Wow. Wow. And, uh, and I love the link between what you witness and then also how you've been trying to help people in relationships because that's really where it all starts you know the, the where consciousness starts where real conversation um emotions are exchanged and so i just i love that link and it's so interesting when you said that you were 7 um and realized that war was so horrific cuz i was 8 um and my parents are from iraq uh first yeah. gulf war happened and that was also when i sort of you know everything changed for me. Um, just, just realizing kind of the, the greatest shadow of human behavior, um, and kind of the irresponsibility of all of it and the recklessness of all of it. So yeah, I've been, uh, on a mission to, uh, to document that. And, um, I can share this with you later, but I have a podcast, um, mini series about growing up Iraqi American from the start of the first Gulf War. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's pretty um, remarkable that we share that in that. Yeah, that age is a very important age. Yeah, yeah, it really shapes your perception. I think of of how you, who you are in this world. Um, so thank you for sharing that, and thank you for sharing about your family. Oh, and I want to talk a little bit about what surprised you the most since you've been on this journey. I mean, you've been in this space for so long, and. I'm curious, like what has kind of been like the biggest imprint for you or the biggest moment of surprise? Well, there are sort of two parts to it, really. One is how people always want love. You know, I mean, I think we have the idea, oh, when people get old, they don't care that much if they, you know, don't have somebody close by. But no, people want to be loved. They want to fall in love. They want love in their lives, all of their lives. You know, they don't, there's no time when it just goes away and you don't want that anymore. You want to witness, you want to be known, you want to be close, you want to be touched, all of those things. It's surprising how fresh they are again and again. And that's been true in my own life, uh, as well as the lives of the people around me. 
And the other thing that along those same lines, it surprises me in working with couples. I've, I've spent, I would say now thousands of hours with couples. It surprises me again and again, how people are willing to forgive each other, you know, and sometimes to forgive for things that I don't believe I could forgive. You know, somebody repeatedly lies to you or cheats on you or steals money from you and, and you still want to love them and you want to repair it because they want to repair it. And I have seen people repair difficulties that I don't believe I could have repaired. Uh, and it gives me tremendous hope for this capacity in humans, you know, to be aware of their awareness, to work with their emotional reactivity, and to repair with the people that they love. So, uh, you know, I think when I started doing couples therapy, I, I perhaps had, let's say, a little bit more belief in separation and divorce as a remedy. <laughs> and that, then I saw how many times people would take that remedy and then they'd get married again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I began to see, well, no, you probably better try to stay and work it out. <laughs> and, um, and that, you know, that's been really rewarding to see people at all ages being able to work it out. I'm going to Soon, I'm going to work with a couple where they're both 85. I mean, they they've reached out wow. to me. You know, uh, they have been barely seen a lot of couples therapists, and they've been kind of war warring with each other for 45 years. But you know, they want they want to change it, and um, that's remarkable to me. That that and it's surprising. It's surprising that people want to be witnessed. They want to be loved. And it doesn't matter how old they are, they still want it. And they're still willing to forgive, you know, uh, and repair and start again. So the surprise, I think, is how important love is. And by love here, I really mean to be personally known by somebody who cares about you and holds you in mind and remains curious, you know, uh, that that's, that's so important to humans. Uh, I don't think anything substitutes for it, really. Um, so that, and the fact that people are willing to go the extra mile once they understand what they need to do to be able to keep that witnessing that contact, they're willing to go the extra mile. So that's been kind of a surprise to me, uh, as I've grown older, you know, whereas when I was younger, I kind of thought, create boundaries, you know, <laughs> take that, get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow that's that's powerful um and i love that people always want love no matter what age they are and what circumstances i think that's powerful and i think a lot of people may have like lied to themselves or um yeah created a little bit of a safety net to not believe that um yeah 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 i mean honestly um many people are living alone these days and um they probably can't allow themselves to feel how much they want to be loved. Wow. So Polly, uh, what do you want to tell our listeners about their wellness, well-being as your main takeaway? Uh, if you could kind of provide like a call to action to folks who are listening, what would it be? Well, you know, I mean, one of the things is do, do get acquainted with real dialogue. I mean, there's stuff online from me that's free about it. Try to speak for yourself when you're speaking, particularly in conflict. Be modest, you know, recognize that you are enclosed within your own subjective snow globe. You don't know what's going on with the other. And so if you can be modest and then be curious and then, you know, practice keeping your ears open, check out, did I get that? Is it right? So using these skills even a little bit lowers the emotional threat level and leaves people then with a little more space for curiosity and humor in their lives. So those, those would be the takeaways for me. Amazing. Amazing. Real dialogue. And where uh, can people find you? Are there any resources? Obviously you've written 19 books. <laughs> I'm, I'm a lot, I, you know, I have, I have interview shows, pay attention, uh, interviews about truth and troubling times. And then I do Beyond the Fringe, which is uh, extraordinary courses 
with scientists and sages. I do that with Mark Matusik. That's an interview show about the growth of consciousness in this period of time beyond the fringe. And then I have my podcast, Enemies, Word of Wisdom. My website is my name, but also you can get to it through Real Dialogue. Uh, Real Dialogue LLC is my company. Um, and I have lots of books. They're all on Amazon. Uh, and even though my last name is hard to spell, it's not hard to spell real dialogue. So <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. And we'll leave those links in the show notes. And Polly, um, do you offer any workshops or one-on-one, -on -one, uh, consulting? A lot, a lot. And it's all available through my website, youngosendrath.com or realdialogue.com. Um, I haven't asked me and ask me anything regular, uh, sort of subscription thing that people can, you know, come into and, and talk to me. But I also do a lot of courses. I I have a kind of massive amount of material now on YouTube. <laughs> and uh, if you just look for me on YouTube, you'll see that. Uh, but, uh, you know, just sort of trying to keep it really fresh, really try to learn about real dialogue. That's, uh, at this point, I think the most important thing, even though I'm you know, I'm in the midst of exploring a lot about consciousness after death now and a whole bunch of things that are going on scientifically with um, near-death experience. All of those things are great and wonderful and I enjoy them. But honestly, if we could develop skills in reducing the hostility between us, everything else is possible. So, you know, that's... Uh, so you can find lots of things on my website, lots of things on YouTube. Um, and I, and I hope you will explore them. Wonderful. Well, Polly, I'm so excited to dive even deeper into your work. Uh, this has been such an enlightening conversation and I feel like we only scratched the surface really. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm sure that a lot of people are going to have a lot of questions. So we'll make sure to keep all the links in the show notes and thank you so much again for your time. I'm going to check out your workshops as well. So you might Thank see me there. Thank you so much, Jason. <laughs> you know, it's wonderful also to know to that I have a fellow traveler on that particular path we're on. So thank oh, you. Yes, yes, likewise. Well, Polly, thanks again. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about how to love between equals and the self-esteem trap with Polly Young Eisendrath. Thanks again.